original <laughs> and he's not he's on he's muted sorry <laughs> the lyrics are best definitely better than anything neil young ever wrote so thank but thank you the lyrics are just <laughs> brilliant such every line of beauty unlike that song are we can you hear me okay yeah i hear you fine can you hear me i can hear you perfectly dr E. Michael Jones, great to have you back again. And you were quite stirred up about that whole controversy, weren't you? So much so that you wrote that amazing song. Yeah, the, the song occurred to me at uh, midnight and I wrote it, sat down and wrote it and played it the next morning. So, yeah, why not? Why not? I was uh, I was in a band in Germany in the 1970s, had my big chance at fame uh, and left and <laughs> came home to obscurity in America. Uh, but uh, Neil Young was big back then. Uh, I remember that Harvest album. It was really big. I mean, everybody, Germans were playing it. Everybody was playing it. It was, in many ways, I think, the high point of that whole kind of music. I don't think Neil Young ever did anything as good as what he did on the Harvest album after that. It was kind of like the same stuff over and over and over again. Same with uh, the Rolling Stones. They hit their peak around the same time. So oh, it was uh, it was a, a, a great moment, but um, it, it didn't last. You know, uh, it moved into something else. But and, I, 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 yeah, I, we we wanted to talk tonight, though, Mike, about how you know these aging um, rockers, you know, who are supposed to be so anti-establishment, have really embarrassed themselves. You have a, a, a fascinating insight into why this has all happened, and it goes back. 
Well, right to the 60s when the anti-war movement was begin really getting going in some of the campuses like Berkeley, etc. in the States. And explain to us what happened to that, how it was co-opted by the CIA effectively. Yeah. So uh, I just looked it up. The Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan uh, on February 9th, 1964. That is roughly three months after the Kennedy assassination. And uh, as I understand it, the Beatles were, the, not the Beatles, the Beatles existed uh, before that. They played music in Hamburg. They were basically playing American rock and roll, a lot of uh, Chuck Berry songs, that type of thing. But they became, the phenomenon, I think, was created to get my generation to forget about the Kennedy assassination. This is three months after the Kennedy assassination, and suddenly it takes the entire world by storm. I mean, America, the American world by storm. If you got on Ed Sullivan, uh, you had access to the mind of America. And uh, uh, there was a, a, a lot of hype before that, and 45% of the American public watched that show, watched the Beatles. Now, you have no idea uh, of how, what effect that had. Everything, everything else just got swept away, and I think it was aimed at my generation. I was, I was 16 years old in 1964. Uh, I remember uh, the Kennedy assassination. I was going to, uh, I was in high school. I was getting ready to go to uh, for cross country practice. Standing on the steps, and they announced that Kennedy had been shot. Now, at that point, uh, the CIA had total control over the media. And the media at that point were three TV stations, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And they all had uh, father figures who were basically the conscience of the nation. And the main father figure among the three was Walter Cronkite. He had served as a correspondent in World War II. And when, when something like this happens, everybody rushes, they turn on the TV, and the first thing you hear is basically Walter Cronkite telling us that it was a lone deranged gunman who killed John F. Kennedy. Well, he got that from Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, and he made it up to basically calm down the nation after what was... I think in retrospect, I think we're all beginning to realize it wasn't a lone deranged government. What it was was a coup d'etat. Uh, uh, it was a coup d'etat in the style of the new CIA. Uh, and the new CIA, the CIA came into existence uh, 19, 1950, let's say 50, 53. And the first thing they did was uh, depose uh, Mossadegh in Iran with a huge orchestration of public opinion. That's all it was. Not one shot was fired. It was nothing but a huge orchestration of public opinion, basically out of Tehran, where the CIA had their finger in basically every single news agency there. They were paying them. They were subsidizing them. And the news agencies all came out in favor of it. And the guy was deposed. And the Shah came in. And he was an American puppet for the next 20-some years in Tehran. They had, they, had, uh, they did it one year later in Guatemala, same uh, playbook. They did it all the way up to 2015, no, 2014, which was the coup d'etat in uh, 
the Ukraine, which led to the crisis we're experiencing right now. By then, it was called a color revolution. So the color was orange, and basically you orchestrate public opinion, and you got to overthrow the government. This is what happened. You, the, 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 this group of people uh, basically uh, shot John F. Kennedy. Uh, they had control of the information. They told you what to think, and everybody thought it. And that was the situation back then. And just to make sure that we didn't think any bad thoughts, I'm talking about my generation, they brought in the Beatles. And suddenly there was this British invasion and everybody's talking. And I remember, I remember I was 16 years old at the time. I went to culture, uh, teen, teenage culture at that time in Philadelphia, where I grew up. First of all, it was local and it was ethnic. Uh, so if you were uh, an Irish, a Germano Irishman like me, uh, which a lot of people were in Philadelphia. You went to dances. You danced twice a week, at least. And you went to dances, and, and you had your own kind of ethnic music, which was doo-wop, if you remember that. And suddenly, the Beatles are playing. I'm thinking, wait a minute, I heard this before. Chuck Berry did a better version of this. Little Richard did a better version of this. I, I couldn't understand it. I didn't understand. What's all the fuss about? We've heard this music before. This is not new. It's not a particularly good version of it. But the fuss was the fact that it was being orchestrated through things like the Ed Sullivan Show, through the media. The media were uh, controlled. What, what do I mean by the media other than the TVs? Time magazine and Life magazine were both media uh, conduits for CIA control. We know that now. Harry Luce was collaborating uh, with the CIA, Harry Luce created this empire in the 1920s. His lieutenant during the 1950s, during this crucial period, was C.D. Jackson. C.D. Jackson was simultaneously on the board of Time magazine and working for the CIA. He was the conduit between the CIA and Time magazine, uh, Life magazine, and he had gotten his start as one a part of the propaganda ministry, the psychological warfare operation after World War II. So you can go, you can find it on the internet uh, when the uh, allied troops uh, started uh, uh, arriving in Germany, they discovered the concentration camps. Uh, Eisenhower came into Ordruf, nobody knows about Ordruf, uh, and uh, he suddenly saw the possibilities here. He was very uh, acute in understanding the power of psychological warfare. The Allies had a lot to cover up at this point because they were engaged in war crimes. All of the Allies were engaged in war crimes. The British were engaged in the firebombing of Dresden and uh, uh, Hamburg. The Soviets were raping and pillaging their way all the way across Eastern Europe. They were all worried that the story would get out. And so they created this alternative narrative called the Holocaust. And they sent a troops, psychological warfare operatives ahead into the next camp down the road, which was Buchenwald. And the man, so they, they had a big uh, kind of uh, exhibition after they get into Buchenwald. There are uh, a table put out, and this is what the Germans were doing, the horrible Nazis were doing in Germany. Two shrunken heads, a lampshade made out of human skin, and an ashtray made out of a human pelvis. Now, this is preposterous. 
The Germans did not shrink heads. It turns out they were taken from some museum. The people in the Amazon shrink heads. So they, they, that was preposterous. That went down the memory hole. Uh, the lampshade had a, a, a little time, a while, because when they talked about that, it all went down the memory hole and was replaced. The point I'm trying to make here is that the man who if Patton told the uh, mayor of Weimar to march all of those Germans out to Buchenwald so that they could see the horrible things that were going on there. And they stood there, and the man who held up the pelvis ashtray was C.D. Jackson. That's the same man who was working with Time Life as on the board of the CIA and on the board of Time Life at a time when they those two magazines were basically the propaganda ministry for the United States of America and part of the conduit that was basically dragooning my generation into rock and roll and drug abuse. Don't forget drug abuse because it played an important role. So where did I where did I first learn about LSD? Well, hold on before you get into that. I feel there's two seminal events that unless people are willing to be honest about them, especially the one the first one, which is the Holocaust, until you understand the Holocaust and John F. Kennedy's assassination, you cannot possibly understand what is going on now. And what frustrates me, Mike, is that so many people in the so-called truth movement are unwilling to touch the Holocaust. They are absolutely terrified. I've only started to educate myself about it. And I, I just feel so ashamed about my limited knowledge and what was pumped into me, I suppose, as, as a child growing up in this country, you know, by the, the state education system. But you know, the German people deserve such an apology for, you know, how the, the Holocaust has been described. There's major question marks, right? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, listen, uh, I'm, I'm trying to describe this narrative. This is a narrative. This, did, this came into being at a certain period of time. It was created at a certain period of time. Are we allowed to talk about this or not? Well, maybe not. If you live in Germany, you may end up uh, in, in jail. This is precisely the problem right now with the German people. Okay. They have yeah. been, they have been, they, ha they had, were subjected to ruthless social engineering after World War II with no restraints. And, and it was at the beginning of this, it was the Morgenthau plan, which was basically this uh, Jew, uh, the secretary of treasury for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was going to starve the Germans to death. They were starving to death. 1946-47 is Das Hungerjahr, where they were withholding food from the German people whose cities had all been destroyed and they had no way of, of growing food at this point in time. And it was only courageous Americans like Herbert Hoover, former President Herbert Hoover, who basically broke this information boycott, broke this propaganda campaign and mobilized the opinion of the American people to say this is this is Semitic vengeance. This is what Hoover was saying. It's Semitic vengeance. That's not what we are as a people. We're a Christian people. This has no place in our foreign policy. And they changed. OK, they changed to the Marshall Plan, which was not starving the people to death. Now, the Marshall Plan was social engineering, and that leads to a whole other other story. But you're right. There is a straight line here. 
The no Holocaust, question. The Holocaust. The history is repeating itself all the time. Straight line to today. Okay, the Holocaust narrative. Uh, the Mossadegh, deposing Mossadegh, 53. Uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, 9-11 and then COVID. These are all psychological warfare operations. Okay, that need to be, once you see this in context, suddenly the whole picture becomes clear. And, and, so, and, and before you move on to the LSD, the, the John F. Kennedy assassination, you know, again, this was, he was trying to take down the very people that are doing this to us now, these secret societies that he spoke so eloquently about just shortly before his assassination, his desire to bring down the Federal Reserve, the private banking system that was keeping people in debt, slavery. And that's what he wanted to do. Maybe that's a naive, uh, superficial portrayal of it. But I, I do believe he was a very decent man who wanted to defend the interests of the American people and end, and end war. Yeah, I think he came to the White House with the idea that he had a mandate from the American people. And that's the, those are the people that he was going to serve. He was the first Catholic to get into the White House. He had that residual Catholicism. He, had, he understood it from his family. He had that, that sense of that Irish distance from England. One of the great tragedies of American foreign policy is the grand rapprochement where the ruling classes in America linked up with the ruling classes in England. And the Churchill family is a, an example of that. Randolph Churchill went to America and got a rich American wife because he was bankrupt. The entire ruling class in England by this time was bankrupt because they all had to have expensive country houses. And in order to get them, they had to borrow money from the Jews, specifically yep. Natty Rothschild. Natty Rothschild, Randolph Churchill, Winston's father died 70,000 pounds in debt to Natty Rothschild. And the Rothschilds forgave the debt, but they got Winston as their servant. And the result is this horrendous 20th century with war after war with the, the Jews in the background. So to get back to LSD, where did yeah. I first learn out about LSD? Was I hanging around with drug dealers? No, I was reading Life magazine and Life magazine did a long story on LSD and how people my age were taking it. Well, it was like an incitement to go take LSD. Okay, there was a big push in the media. Even uh, uh, the other, the other big glossy uh, Look magazine, they had people like Cary Grant talking about Cary Grant, the famous movie star, how he took LSD and he found it great or helpful or something like that. This was MK Ultra. The CIA got involved with uh, mind control. They thought you could control your brain. If, you, if they controlled your brain, they could control your mind, which is what materialists think. And that's not true. Your brain and your mind are different. But it had a serious effect on your, on your mind. There's no question about it. And suddenly you had this. Now, why are they proposing that? Well, what's going on in 1964? with my generation or the people slightly older than me, my generation is heading toward being drafted into the army uh, because they had mandatory military service at that point. And if you turned 18, you had to register with the draft board. And uh, if you registered for the draft board when I was 18, it meant you went to fight in Vietnam. And this was not a popular war. 
So uh, the only way you could get out of it is uh, by going to college. And so suddenly you had this huge class uh, distinction in America between the student, the, the young people who went to college and the young people who didn't. So in my proletarian neighborhood uh, where I grew up, uh, those guys, the guys I used to hang out with on the corner, they went to Vietnam and some of them never came back. Fergus Carroll, uh, an Irishman, my contemporary, died in Vietnam. Never saw him again. So this is the, this is the crisis, and you're having, uh, undergoing large-scale uh, opposition, domestic opposition to a very unpopular war. And so what does the CIA do? I'm saying they started promoting sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And you can do it all in one big thing. And the key to this thing is the music and where you gather uh, to listen to the music. That's what's going on. That's what's going on at this point. And so if you watch, uh, there's a documentary called uh, Berkeley in the 60s. If you watch that, the guys, they're a little bit like 64 is a free speech movement at Berkeley. You watch the debate around that. And it's basically young, clean cut college guys wearing button down shirts talking about Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Aquinas. Ten years later, they're all drugged out. They're all sexed out. They're all just destroyed. And they don't have a clue about what really happened to them. So they interview them like 20, 30 years later. And they're saying, yeah, it was great. We had a great time. No, you were taken out of action. You were basically, you had a movement of grassroots movement among our generation that was uh, taken uh, out and destroyed. It was that simple. And, yeah, and we yeah. end up with the situation to, that we have today where the likes of Neil Young are backing big pharma, big pharmaceuticals. <laughs> How, I mean, did really How did this happen? How did this happen? How did this happen? You know, Mr. Rebellion. Oh, so the, the, the Neil, uh, one of the crucial events was the, uh, the uh, demonstration at Kent State, the National Guard opens fire and they kill four students in Kent State. What was a peaceful anti-war demonstration? I uh, I was I was uh, in Philadelphia at that time. We were uh, getting ready to graduate from college. I had been married. I've been married for a year. So my wife and I uh, are going to join the demonstration. So we get in, the, start marching toward the center of Philadelphia. We'll have to go through Fairmount Park and suddenly all of these Guys come out of the bushes, literally out of the bushes, carrying Viet Cong flags, and they all run to the front of the parade, and we're all marching behind Viet Cong flags. I know who they were. They lived in the apartment building where I lived. They were all communists. They'd all been to Cuba on the Venceremos Brigade. They were all members of the Communist Party, and they took over the entire parade simply by walking in the front of it. Okay? Yeah, so Keeps so happening. That was so that that's that's what was going on there. Neil Young at this point is off in I guess Laurel Canyon, he's in California somewhere, and he writes Four Dead in Ohio. Okay, so it's an anti-war protest for those poor guys who got shot there, and you're against the establishment. And then fa fast forward uh 40 years later, and you're part of the establishment. You're part of the establishment. And the establishment now, the psychological warfare operation now is called COVID. It's a bi a combination, uh, bio warfare, psychological warfare. And you're on board because now you're part of the establishment because these people basically, how did this happen? Well, through the record industry, through uh, Rolling Stone magazine is a classic example of what I'm talking about. 
Okay, so it starts off as like this countercultural operation where you read about, oh, there's an interview with Bob Dylan. Great, I'll buy it, you know. And it becomes an, uh, uh, basically the advertising medium for the record industry. And the record industry takes over. And suddenly by 19, so 19, uh, no, 2019, suddenly, uh, the, 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 now the younger generation, they're called millennials now, the 20 year olds now, they're waking up to the fact that they've been raised on pornography and have a bad habit of watching pornography and masturbating. And they're, they realize they're slaves to their passions. And at this point, my book suddenly becomes popular. My book, Libido Dominandi, uh, sexual liberation and political control starts being discussed in these circles in connection with their boycott of pornography called NoFap November. And who comes out to denounce these people for waking up to their slavery? Rolling Stone magazine is now denouncing these people, saying they're anti-Semites. <laughs> <laughs> So what you oh so you admit that the Jews are behind pornography so that's what yeah. you really say, but that is the kind of transformation. So to so back to Rolling Stone, who is one of the certifiable gods, guitar gods, according to Rolling Stone magazine? It's it's Eric Clapton. Clapton. Eric Clapton doesn't have a clue. It's to his credit, he's he's a a kind of humble guy. I mean, I saw the video where he's trying to explain himself. He didn't have a clue about anything. He didn't know anything about social engineering. He's one of the greatest assets of the social engineers, but he didn't have a clue of what he was doing. And suddenly COVID comes and he says, okay, I'll get a shot. Well, he wakes up next morning. He's paralyzed. His fingers don't move. Well, wait a minute. That's not good if you're a guitarist. Okay. <laughs> and so he try, he gets a, another shot and it's even worse. And at this point he wakes up and says, there's something wrong with this. And, and he teams up with, Van Morrison, uh, another uh, an Irish rocker, uh, and Who's they do a song. His, he's true to his name, or at least he's still anti-establishment. You do know that, right? Right. So they Although come up with he is slightly, you know, he's starting to say, "I'm not anti-vax," but it's like I'm not racist. But you don't have to say the first bit. It's okay. Right. But right. anyway, sorry. So, so once again, who are the commissars now? Well, it's Rolling Stone. Oh, they're commissars. I now I get it. They are the ones that, whose job is to keep you following the party line. So Rolling Stone, after putting Eric Clapton on the cover seven times, now denounces him. And suddenly the whole story is now starting to unfold. It was social engineering. Rock and roll was taken over by the social engineers. And uh, uh, if you're lucky, you survived it. If you weren't, you died of a drug overdose or something like that, or your brain got fried with whatever. Now it's all becoming clear. This is the great moment of this moment of awakening now. That's the, I, for that, we should be grateful. Because if you go yeah. back, if you go back to 1963 of Walter Cronkite telling you it was a lone deranged gunman and everybody believed it. To now, when within minutes of the COVID thing, you got all kinds of people saying, no, this isn't right. This is not true. This is not medicine. That shows you how far consciousness has arisen during this period of time. That's so true. I mean, look, it's a bit like politics, I suppose. You don't get into rock and roll unless you can be controlled, you can be blackmailed, you can be compromised. And a, a really good example of what you're talking about 
I think is you too and Bono in particular. I mean, you know, when I, that was more my generation and, you know, we grew up with them and they started out busking on Grafton Street and, you know, they were anti-establishment. They were speaking about what was going on in the North, singing about it. Right. How right. wrong it was. And, you know, we, we really looked up to them. And, you know, they were obviously heroes for my generation. And then before you know it, Bono is hanging out with warmongers like Blair and Bush and, you know, siding up to the UN. And I saw him recently, Mike, in a, a little coastal village of Dublin. And he had his minders around him, but I was not going to miss the opportunity to go up and give him a piece of my mind, you know, <laughs> for the fact that he has utterly disgraced himself. I mean, this is the same man who on stage not so long ago gave a shout out to the arch pedophile Cardinal McCarrick, my friend, he described him as. So, and there's plenty of pictures of Bono that, you know, once you look at them, you see he's a sleazebag. He's a, he's he's just a dirty old man. But when I went up to him to say to him, how can you live with yourself for what you've done? Silence in the face of this tyranny. I realized that I was looking into the face of a zombie. And yep. Did he say he was, anything? He was just dead. And I actually felt pity. Well, he he couldn't articulate. He he just put his hand out and he said, put his ha arm hand on my arm and he said, my friend. But to me, it looked like he was just dead. And I wonder, was that the effect of substances? I don't know. I don't know. Was but he high? Was he high on drugs? <laughs> I don't know. He was heading into a wine bar. <laughs> um, and I just, all, all I felt was sort of pity. Really, it was pity because... He just seemed incapable of stringing a sentence together. But the, look, I don't know how controlled Bono is, but he he hangs around with these these filth, these warmongers, and he's obviously utterly and totally controlled by them. Um, and that's how they do it, right? Fame and money, and you you play their tune. I remember he's he's younger than me, uh, and he came. By the time he was famous, I wasn't listening to this music anymore. But I do. My son was listening to it. He remembers uh, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I remember that song. How long? Um, how long must we sing this song? And then right. he's walking around with Blair and and Clinton, hanging out with these people. It's the story of our age, uh, but we are also part of that story because we are conscious of what happened. We now, we can now put these pieces together and understand what was going on and what is going on right now. So you've, you, it's reached this conclusion in Canada as, as we speak. Uh, I, is it big news in Ireland? It's certainly big news over here. The trucker convoy. Yes. Yeah. And, I, we were just saying there now they're starting to seize assets, right? Yes. I mean, so, so, Let's say, who is the heir of this kind of counterculture? Uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, do, I don't know whether you remember when his mother was the darling of Studio 54 uh, during the 1970s, where she was hanging out with all those uh, attractive uh, 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 influencers of that age. Uh, and his father... 
uh, or I don't know whether it was, there's doubt now about whether that was his father or not. Everyone here is saying if Fidel Castro is his father. He certainly mm -hmm. looks like Fidel Castro. Sure does. But but his his father had become uh, uh, famous for basically betraying the Catholic people of Canada. Uh, on uh, the, the crucial issue in Canada was the sexual revolution. And the crucial place in Canada at that point was Quebec. Uh, the Catholic powerhouse of Canada, the French-speaking Catholic powerhouse of Canada that had never really assimilated. And we don't know this, but in the right after World War II, in books like Paul Blanchard's American Freedom and Catholic Power, the anti-Catholic book that he wrote, uh, he thought Quebec was a big threat to the United States of America because of the birth rate, because they were not using contraception. And the man who brought that, who cleared that up was Trudeau, who betrayed his own people, he's French-Canadian, he betrayed his own people, uh, implemented uh, abortion and birth control. And the problem, again, is compounded by the fact that the Catholic Church rolled over and played dead. And I'm talking specifically about when Humane Vitae came out, 1968. Oh, so now we're at the high point of the revolutionary moment in America. And uh, the Canadian bishops issue a statement. It's called the Winnipeg Statement, in which they said that Catholics do not have to follow uh, the church's teaching on contraception. That was a catastrophe for the Catholic Church in Canada. It's a, whenever it's a ca catastrophe for the Catholic Church, it's a catastrophe for the country. Yeah. Ireland is certainly an example of that. But Canada, ev even more so. So basically, you uh, eliminate the opposition uh, and it's a disaster for the people. Even more recently, Germany, another catastrophe for the Catholic Church. I don't know whether you saw the uh, sin, the synod, the report of the synod in Germany. You've no. seen this? No. Well, guess what the German people came out in favor of? I know this is going to shock you. Is it basically we want to ha have a, a, an understanding of the social engineering that was imposed on us. We want reparations for all the Germans who were killed in uh, the firebombing and uh, expelled from that. No, none of this type of stuff. We want reparations from Israel, no more submarines, no more reparations. No, the German people have announced in their synod, the final meeting of their synod that they want, change the church's teaching on homosexuality. Uh, allow the divorced and remarried to receive communion. And all along these lines, I said, look, oh. the, f the fix the fix is in here. This is not the German people. And as soon yeah. as I say this, the next day, Cardinal Müller, who was used to be the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, okay, the number two position in the Catholic Church, he comes out and says, this is not the German people. This is the German uh, uh, professional Catholics who want to live a comfortable life because there's lots of money in the German church, but they don't want to follow church's teaching. That's what the synod thing is about. That the Germans are play the leading role in the Catholic church in this regard. And that goes all the, all the way back to the social engineering that took place after World War II, when the German people were crippled because of the sexual liberation that was imposed on them after World War II as part of the Marshall Plan, the benign Marshall Plan. And, and 
Mike, you know, I think of that period in Ireland in the 60s and, you know, Vatican II was creeping in and Ireland was profoundly conservative, you know, but, you know, people had their own ways of socialising. It was mainly revolving around the church and and a lot of we say it is innocence, but no, <laughs> it's not innocence. It's it's decency. It's morality. That's what our culture was based around. Was there a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes? Probably. But by and large, you know, people had their large families, parents stayed together and it was a very, very safe country. And I know that my parents' generation must have watched the advent of rock and roll and pop culture creeping into Ireland in the 70s and 80s. And, they, you know, not only were they trying to battle with Vatican II and these beautiful, ornate churches being ripped to shreds, altars being pulled down, beautiful marble altars that took decades to build, all of this being ripped out of our beautiful churches and the mass being taken apart. But then, you know, we had the advent of mini skirts and, and sexual culture, I suppose, and women's lib. It was a very, very difficult time in Ireland. And, you know, I really do pity my parents' generation that they must have been so frightened for their children, knowing what was to come. And now children growing up in Ireland are growing up in a paedophile pornographic culture they have no self-respect i was talking to some italian and spanish teenagers the other day and god help them they were telling me that virtually all of their friends parents virtually all of them are divorced this is two tragedy profoundly catholic countries like italy and spain i thought thank god it's not as bad yet in ireland but most Irish children in the coming years are going to grow up in broken homes. And that is because of the loss of Catholic social teaching. It's devastating. It is devastating. And I'm I'm saying I'm, I'm saying it started in Germany. It started in Germany because the social engineers had nothing to stop. Them. Nothing. They could do whatever they wanted because Germany was a conquered country. And so it began, as I said, almost immediately after the war. Okay, as soon as the Währungsreform takes place, the currency reform, the money starts coming in and pornography starts coming in with it. And there is a local uh, German anti-pornography group, like the American Legion of Decency, it was called the Volkswagenbund, or the, the, the Vigilance League. And uh, it had the support of the German hierarchy, and in particular, it had the support of Cardinal Frings of Cologne. Cardinal Frings was not afraid to stand up to the Americans. He told them during Das Hungerjahr, he told the German people, if there's a warehouse down the street that has food, you have a right to break into that warehouse and take food that you can feed your family. It's not theft. And so the Germans coined a new verb called Fringsen which means to take what is rightly yours because you have a right to the, the food to survive. Same thing is true of coal. Now, this same man who was willing to stand up to the allies when he was defenseless, so what did he have? He just had the authority of the Catholic Church. That was it, moral authority. That's all he had, was also the prime defender 
of sexual morality in Germany at this point against what was a concerted onslaught. So beginning 1951, okay, there's a, a German actress by the name of Hildegard Kneff, who was a star when I was there in the 70s. Uh, she uh, marries a, a Jewish uh, American army officer. They move back to America. She goes to Hollywood. Okay, great. You died and went to heaven. What more do you need? You're in Hollywood. You're a good-looking chick. You're in Hollywood. Well, wait a minute. 1951, she's back in Germany again. They did a German film called Die Sünderin, or The, the, lady, the lady Sinner, the, the Sinner, which is a direct assault on the, what is, on the German sexual morality. And the people are outraged, and Frings is leading the charge against this. Okay? They're not going to stop because they know they have the upper hand. I'm saying they, the Jews, the pornographers, they know they have the upper hand because it's a conquered country. And so now Germany is flooded with the Kinsey report and the report becomes a German word. And now we come to a crucial moment. Okay. 1964. Before this happens, 1959, Father Joseph Ratzinger shows up in Bonn and he meets Frings. And Frings is taken by this guy. This is obviously a very bright guy. He goes up to him and says, I'd like you to come to Rome with me because we're going to have something called uh, a, an ecumenical council, and you can come as my expert. So Ratzinger agrees. They go down to uh, go down to Rome, and now he reads the preliminary documents. They're written by Cardinal Ottaviani, and it's old school. Ottaviani is an old man at this point. He is the uh, head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It's still called the Holy Office at that point. And he writes preliminary documents that attack communism. Okay, we know communists are bad, but then he attacks America as well. He starts talking about Hollywood, starts talking about psychoanalysis. Well, wait a minute. Hollywood and psychoanalysis, there's one group of people that makes up these two things, and they're Jews. So it looks as if the church is heading towards some type of condemnation of uh, the Jews, of America. America is a malignant power at the high point of the Cold War. So what does Ratzinger do? Gets the entire preliminary documents thrown out, okay? And then he puts a new program in place using Frings as his mouthpiece. And the new program is, hey, we have nothing to fear from the modern world. Let's stop being negative. Let's be positive. Let's none of those condemnations like uh, the modernist against the oath against modernism. None of that stuff about the syllabus of errors, pious and ninth. This is all an embarrassment. Let's move forward. Let's be positive. Let's forget about the past. Well, what has, what's happening in Germany now? The latest film, the Jews are still at it. They release a film called Das Schweigen. This is a film by Ingmar Bergman, the great Swedish director, the man who is synonymous with art film. And it is collaborate, he's collaborating with a Jew by the name of Harry Schein, uh, who was an emigre from Austria, World War II, who has close connections with Hollywood. And Hollywood's breaking the code over in America at the same time. They're going to send up a film called uh, Kiss Me Stupid. Okay, the the art film hits Germany, Bergman's film hits Germany at the very moment that Ratzinger is down at Rome proposing this new positive alternative. And all of the German 
bishops and priests, they're all embarrassed by their legion of decency and its negative approach, and they abandon their own legion of decency. They run up the white flag. They surrender to the social engineers, and the direct result is the synod. That synod where they're saying we have to change the church's teaching on homosexuality is a direct result of running up the white flag in 1964 and handing the country of Germany over to the pornographers. That's why we're in this mess right now. Yeah, that's why we're in it. And that's, you know, how countries fall into tyranny, Mike, because when people are so preoccupied with all of the issues that arise when they go down this road of degeneracy and immorality, you know, such as divorce, such as abortion and, you know, having affairs and um, just the, the whole breakdown of, of family life, when they're so preoccupied with that, they can't fight for their freedom. And this is why, you know, Catholicism is the most valuable social teaching that has ever existed, because it's all about you being happy and strong and having a purpose in life that, you know, will make you somebody that will go out and defend, go out and speak the truth and not not you know, I mean, I'm probably not explaining this well, but we see people are caught up in the trivia of their lives, the, the minuscule details that, you know, the materialism and they their country and their freedom is being taken from them. Right. And they, they are allowing it to happen. That's right. That's right. And so the crucial moment in life is when you reach maturity. Uh, let's say you're 20 years old, uh, as I was. So I'm 20 years old. I'm in college. And I realize, I think I'd, I'd like to have a life of my own. I'm tired of living with my parents. Because I didn't, I didn't, you weren't, these weren't dorms you went to. You stayed at home and you went to college in Philadelphia because that's the way the situation was the time. And so I thought, there's only one way you can have your own life and you have to get married to do that. And so I got married. I was uh, when I proposed to my wife, I was 20 years old and she was 19. And when we got married, I was 21 and she was 20 and we hadn't finished college yet. And my father was telling my Irish father was telling me, no, you have to, camp, you have to wait. This was like Irish birth control. They like, wait until you get your PhD and then get. And I realized I knew this. No, it's not going to work. There's, I knew that there was a storm coming. I had this intuitive sense there was. And you better do this because this will situates you in life. Well, the problem is that when you have a, an entire generation, like the generation of the 20 years olds who have been raised on pornography and have bad sexual habits as a result of that, you can't approach the opposite sex. You don't know how to do it. You don't know how to relate to the opposite. All of the the vehicles. What was the main vehicle to approach the opposite sex when I was 16? It was going to dances. It was dancing. That's what Philadelphia was. It was dancing. And you yeah. dance. And if you couldn't dance, you were kind of a loser. And if you could, you you know, it was it was a different world. That led to the meeting this lady. Uh, and that led to getting married. And that led to me starting off in life. And you've got now a whole generation of people where it hasn't happened. Now, this is serious. This is serious because that means the society is not going to move forward because it moves forward with 
having children and that's that's the next generation that's your access to the future well and now mike they're they're preoccupied with you know not being comfortable in their own body you know maybe they're a male they think they're a male when they're female these are the things that are preoccupying the generation that is coming up and is going to, you know, be running the show. And, you know, are they bisexual? Are they all of these deviant things in their head that have been put into their head by the social engineers? They're a generation destroyed. And of course, they've been re re reared on Hollywood. I mean, even when they start at the youngest, um, you know, the toddlers are getting it, the unicorns and the, the you know, it's nonstop indoctrination and until parents switch off tv and switch off hollywood and until they realize that they are creating the destruction of their own children we were talking i was telling you earlier mike how you know two women who are synonymous with the destruction of ireland and who played such a key role in turning it into de the degenerate, immoral country that it is, Sinead O'Connor and pres former President Mary Robinson, recently both lost a child and a grandchild to suicide. These women who created modern Ireland, their children cannot bear to live in it. Doesn't it say everything? It's, it's almost biblical. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, you know, David's sins and the next generation is the one that pays for the sin. Wasn't Mary Robinson instrumental in the uh, introduction of abortion to Ireland? Oh, well, she certainly helped. She certainly helped. And Mary McAleese, of course. Um, this, this well, the two before... of them, you know, like, again, we were programmed to think, oh, a woman president. Wow. Like, that's how my generation was programmed. We were supposed to feel proud by virtue of the fact that 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 this was a woman. So therefore, we should be delighted about this. But now when I look back, I think that made absolutely no sense. This, you know, but the programming, it was just dreadful. Right. And it's just ridiculous now. I mean, it was bad then, but. Yes, yes. So who, who cares? Uh, who cares? Uh, uh, it's, it's what you propose. It's what comes out of your mouth. Uh, not the what's in your in your uh, abdomen that is the important thing. It's co what comes out of your mouth. It's what's in your mind and not the color of your skin. But we had yeah. that was that was all taken over and weaponized here in the United States. Uh, so it would only be logical then if you or biblical, let's say biblical, that if you introduce the the murder of children, that it would come how come home to roost, that the chickens would come home to roost. It's a horrible thing, horrible thing to think, but uh, it, it seems that it seems that that's the case. The the gospel, uh, the reading of Saint James today at Mass was, uh, "Don't blame God for your temptation; uh, it's your fault." And you, uh, when you succumb to temptation, you commit sin. And when sin reaches maturity, it becomes death. That's what we're seeing here. The wages of sin is death, especially uh, the wages of the the inst the the uh, the faculty that you as a human being have to bring life into this world, new life into this world. If that gets perverted, it will end up uh, with death. You end up bringing death, and this is something that I explored in relation to Hollywood, 
especially uh, the 1970s when pornography led to horror films. And we had uh, Deep Throat, the famous pornography film in the early 70s. Uh, the sequel to Deep Throat was Alien uh, with a famous horror film. Uh, both of them are about oral sex, uh, even though it's not quite uh, obvious in Alien, but that's what it's about. Uh, but by the end of the 70s, this type of stuff will kill you. And that's why that's why horror films were so popular at this point. They knew that everyone had had bad experiences uh, through sexual liberation, but nobody could articulate it because everyone was. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. You know, we all want to be uh, seen as uh, enlightened. And so we all approving things that hurt us. One way or the other, you know, broke your heart gave you venereal disease, whatever, you know. And now someone can finally say the truth, which is basically if you disconnect sex from the moral order, it will kill you. It will kill you. And and the symbol of this is the, the babysitter. Some guy jumps out of the bushes with a knife and kills you because you took off your blouse when you were babysitting. You know, they're very like slasher films are like the return of morality. And Hollywood is spreading this in spite of the fact that they everything if they were conscious of what they were doing, they wouldn't do it. They all believe the opposite. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, Mike, you, would you say it is never too late, especially in a country like Ireland? You know, the infrastructure is all there. Most of the Catholic Church have been taken over, sadly, by the New World Order and their priests are communists. The the takeover is is virtually complete but there is an underground church now growing where uh, mass is said in latin and the priests demand that communion is taken the correct way uh, on the tongue and um, the standards of the, the mass are preserved and you see people there who are you know completely unmasked and who have big families and the way it used to be in Ireland. And it's beautiful. And these these masses are growing. The traditional mass is making a big comeback. So, I mean, people, it's never too late. Even if you haven't given your children the Catholic education that they deserve, it's never too late. And start now. Is that, Would you recommend, would you, would you agree with that, Mike? It's never too late for an individual. And the symbol of that is the good thief. So that you can be, you can be a man who hasn't the faintest. Who is this guy in the middle here? I have the faintest idea. I think he's God. I'm sorry. And Jesus said, "You'll be in heaven. I'll see you in heaven." And the other thief cursed him, and he didn't go to heaven. So it's obvious that at the on your deathbed, you can convert and you can be saved. Okay, by the grace of God. But we're talking about countries now too. And is it possible for countries? to turn around. Now, this is a deep question. This is a deep question because uh, Vico, the great Italian philosopher from Naples, talked about uh, empires and how they are natural things and they rise and then they fall. And all natural things just grow and then they reach a point of uh, the high point and then they decline and they fall. And so the classic example he had was the Roman Empire. He grew up in the ruins of the Roman Empire. Vesuvius is right there. He could see Pompeii, all that type of stuff. And he knew that it rose and fell and it collapsed and it doesn't exist anymore. It was replaced by the Holy, Holy Roman Empire, which was better than the Roman Empire. So there's an upward movement to history. 
but is your culture going to is is your country going to be saved? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm a, I'm of mixed feelings. He he talked about the recorso. It's not clear in Vico whether the whether if a country uh, whether you're there's some type of inevitable trajectory here that it's going to be rise and fall. Don't know, but I well, know that I mean, individuals it's, it's, can be saved. Yeah, I, I I mean Ireland very very soon is going to be an Afro Islamic Chino China Chinese state. Like there's just no question because our population is probably the smallest in Europe and we've com been completely overrun. And, you know, when you go into Dublin city centre now, you just, it's like spot the Irish person. That's, you can play that quite successfully and fail because it's very, very difficult to see Irish people in many parts of Dublin now. So, you know, probably Ireland, probably, I think we do have to accept that it is not going to survive as an Irish country. And, um, but our faith is more important. You know, yes. Catholicism and, and Irishness used to go hand in hand. Not anymore. The Irish want to live in an African country and a country that is, you know, Muslim. And that's what they've chosen by not standing up to the tyrants in government. So that's what they're going to get. And, you know, so be it. It's not for want of trying on our part. But I, I don't think Ireland can be saved at this stage. Yes, there is something to that uh, when. Uh, North Africa was one of the great Catholic areas uh, after, at the time of the Roman Empire. Uh, there were heresies there. Uh, the heresy, the Donatist heresy was flourishing. St. Augustine was living there, tried to use the power of the state to combat heresy, uh, was fairly successful, and then suddenly Rome fell. And suddenly there's no police power. And at this point, the Vandals came in and the Vandals made an alliance with the Donatists and they swept Catholicism off the map. It was wiped off the map and it never came back. Never came back. The last, the image here is, maybe we should leave the sobering image of Augustine on his deathbed, waiting for the Vandals to come in and destroy everything he worked for for his entire life. And the last moment there is Augustine's books being carried off to the last ship that's leaving and heading off to Rome. And that's it. And then that's the end of Catholicism in Northern Africa. Northern Africa. That's it. So it can happen again. But by the grace of God, uh, we as individuals can carry on, and who knows, it's in God's hands. But there has to be some type of conversion. There has to be some type of awareness. This, the fundamental problem with the Catholic Church is that they don't understand social engineering, and they don't understand psychological warfare. And so you now have Rome controlled by the Jesuits, basically as the, the chaplains to the oligarchs, working against the Catholic people, the interest of the Catholic people throughout the world, best epitomized by Germany. Yes. Yeah. How ironic. How ironic. Well, Mike, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you very, very much. People can go to culturewars.com to keep up with all of your work. And there's some you've done so many fantastic interviews recently. And we never got to discuss the whole Joe Rogan thing. But I look, you know, I was saying recently, Joe Rogan, he's controlled opposition, in my opinion. I mean, obviously, is since he, since this 
ridiculous apology that he made. And it's the likes of you and John Waters. These are the voices, your voices that people really want to hear and they're being suppressed. Um, so thank you for what you're doing. And, you know, as I say, people can watch your interviews on, on BitChute and some of the other channels. But I would really recommend people um, to do that because we've learned so much from you, Mike. And thank you. Thank you, Gemma. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. OK, we'll talk again soon, please, God. Thank you. Take care, everyone. You're Good welcome. night. God bless.